Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Francis Marone talks about the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art in Midtown Manhattan. We don't often think of New York as a major city for classical architecture, perhaps. It is the home, in our imagination rather, of the skyscraper, of modernism, of the new and the latest. But in fact, as Marone argues here, New York ranks with Paris, Vienna, Rome, and other great cities for its bounty of classical architecture, to be found literally, as he says, on nearly every block and corner. Indeed, that is because classicism has served as the lingua franca of architecture, not a dead language of the art, but the common tongue for a wide range of highly evolved styles, nurtured and continued at the Institute today, which educates, promotes, trains, and celebrates the classical arts from its headquarters in the heart of New York City. Marone, an architectural historian with nearly a dozen publications under his belt, takes us on a virtual tour of Manhattan's classical architectural gems here. For more podcasts like this, for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art. This is an organization that I've been involved with for many years, dating back to its founding in 1992, when it was called the Institute for the Study of Classical Architecture. It's an organization that is dedicated to the promotion of classical architecture. And when I say dedicated to the promotion, I mean it's a school, a school that teaches the techniques of classical architecture to architecture students and professional architects who did not receive that training in the schools they attended, because it's a very rare thing nowadays. And yet many architects, for one reason or another, find that it's an enormously useful skill to have. Uh, It's also an organization that, among the general public, promotes the idea that classical architecture is something to be appreciated, to promote the idea that classical architecture is not something that is dead. It is not a dead language like Latin. It is a living language like English. Now, there was an earlier organization in New York called Classical America that was founded by a man in my opinion, a very great man named Henry Hoke Reed, an architectural historian. And this organization was similar in scope and ambition to the Institute of Classical Architecture, and so it only made sense that at a certain point, the two organizations would merge, and they did. Now it is Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, which reflects the fact that it isn't simply about architecture, but about all the arts, and it's located here at 20 West 44th Street in the building of the General Society of Mechanics and Tradesmen, a building which is so interesting nowadays for the variety of organizations, so many of them connected in one way or another with the built environment or the natural environment of New York and its region that are housed in the building. At the Institute of Classical Architecture, you can attend lectures, you can take courses, both lectures and practical, technical architectural courses. You can view uh, a remarkable collection of antique casts, many of which were once in the possession of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and which have now been put in the safekeeping of the Institute of Classical Architecture, and more. So. New York 
and classical architecture. If you don't think of New York as a classical city, I think it's because you take classical New York for granted. You take for granted how many classical buildings there are in New York. You take for granted that there are marvelous classical details to be seen on literally every block of New York City. This is indeed one of the world's great classical cities. At first, you may think of Rome. You may think of Paris. You may think of Vienna. I think those are the big three, but there are others that may not come as readily to mind, but which are right up there. St. Petersburg. Dublin. Washington, D.C., of course, is a city that I think few people have trouble thinking of as a classical city because of the grand government buildings that are designed in one classical style or other. But you know what? New York City belongs on that list with those other cities. New York is a great classical city, a city that has given us some of the finest buildings in America in a classical style. What finer federal-style public building is there in America than New York's wonderful city hall downtown. And when I say federal style, we're talking about one of many styles that fall under the heading of classical architecture. Classical architecture isn't something monolithic. It doesn't just mean Greek architecture or Roman architecture. It means so much more than that. It's a broad heading. Classicism is a language of architecture, one which is very old and one which is highly evolved. Great architectural historian from London, longtime curator of Sir John Soane's museum, Sir John Summerson, once said, classicism is the lingua franca of architecture in the West. It is a way of doing architecture, a way of speaking architecture that is to be found in all the cities and towns of the Western world, and one which is millennia old. And I'll give an example to start out, and then we'll sort of survey the classical architecture of New York. If you go up to Broadway and 168th Street, you can visit one of the most beautiful subway stations in New York the IRT 168th Street Station. Now, it wasn't one of the original stations that opened in 1904 because the line ended at 145th Street, but it was extended northward in 1906. So the station is from 1906, and the station was designed by the original architects of the IRT, a New York firm called Heinz and Lafarge, a great New York firm. And it seems remarkable from the standpoint of 2019, but... When the New York City subway system was new, there was every intention that this system be as beautiful as any subway in the world or more beautiful. And these early stations have marvelous details. And in this 168th Street station, there is this fantastic central lighting fixture. Everybody looks at it. Everybody sees that it's beautiful. Everybody loves it. And people write blog posts about this lighting fixture and about the other decorations of this station. But when you analyze that lighting fixture, you see that what it is that makes it special, what it is that speaks to us, are conventions 
that derive from classical architecture. It's a circular lighting fixture, and around the diameter of it, you have, first of all, classical molding, which is known as a bead and reel molding. And then inside of that, there is another circle featuring another classical molding, which is known as a guilloche molding. And then inside of that is another circle with another classical molding, which is known as an egg and dart molding. What you are seeing is, in fact, something which was designed by somebody who had been schooled in classical architecture in designing the details of classical architecture. And it's something that we feel comfortable with without even realizing why we feel comfortable with it, or even thinking about why we feel comfortable with it. We just feel comfortable with it because people have been comfortable with this way of doing things for 2,500 years or more, which is how old some of these moldings are. You can go back to Greek architecture and Roman architecture and see that the same moldings that appear in our subway stations that produce the lighting fixtures or the ceramic decorations that we all find so beautiful are present there too. Go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, walk around the Greek and Roman galleries, and you can see things from 100 BCE that feature the same ornamental devices that are on so many buildings in New York, that are on the brownstones of Brooklyn, that are on the 1920s office buildings of Lower Manhattan, that are on the elevator apartment buildings of West End Avenue, that are on the buildings of the Bronx Zoo and the New York Botanical Garden, and so on and so forth. So if you want to survey the classical architecture of New York, well, you know, New York was a city that was born during an era of classical architecture. The colonial architecture of New York is classical. The architecture of the Morris Jumel Mansion on Edgecombe Avenue at 168th Street is classical architecture, as is the architecture of St. Paul's Chapel on Broadway between Fulton Street and V.C. Street. So let's go downtown to St. Paul's Chapel. This is a building that was built in the 1760s. It's the oldest extant public building on Manhattan Island. And it is still one of the loveliest churches in New York City. It's in a Georgian style. It's the English architecture of the 18th century, the Anglican church architecture of the 18th century, from the 1760s, it falls into that category of Georgian architecture that we call mid-Georgian, heavily influenced by the work of an Italian architect of the Renaissance named Andrea Palladio. This building has a big portico of ionic columns rendered in brown stone. It has that big window right in the center that we call a Palladian window adapted from the buildings of the architect Palladio with the high arched central section and the lower flanking sections that are flat top. You know a Palladian window when you see it. And the building is uh, demure and lovely. It's not really a building of imperial excess but it is through and through a classical building. Who designed it? Well, you know what? 
no one really designed this building. And this is one of the remarkable facts about classical architecture in New York and in so many other places. The buildings were often built by builders. And what we mean by builders is these were carpenters or they were masons or they were the kinds of people that God forbid we nowadays call general contractors. And they uh, built these buildings using pattern books or sometimes just using their own wits. But the classicism was almost in the blood of these builders because it was so much a part of the culture. It ran in the veins of the culture. And classical buildings, beautiful classical buildings, could be built without architects. We call this vernacular architecture. Uh, and the vernacular of New York City was not only a classical vernacular, but it could sometimes be a surprisingly sophisticated and elaborate classical architecture. Go inside St. Paul's Chapel and marvel at the beauty of the space, the beautiful slender Corinthian columns with really elaborate capitals, a beautiful pulpit, the Waterford chandeliers. You realize that in a vernacular building like this emerged from a culture that was imbued with the values of classical architecture and, in fact, that culture produced New York buildings up until the middle of the 20th century and even beyond. If you walk just a little bit south of St. Paul's Chapel to Wall Street, to Broadway and Wall Street, take a left and go to Broad Street. Of course, that's one of the most famous intersections on the planet. Wall Street and Broad Street. Why? Because that's where the New York Stock Exchange is located. Now, that's a grand classical building, a little bit more along the lines of that imperial excess that I was talking about. But that's not the building that I want you to look at, at least not right away. I want you to look to the north, to the building that stands opposite Broad Street. This building has an unwieldy name. It's called Federal Hall National Memorial. And you gotta say the whole thing. You can't just call it Federal Hall because it's not Federal Hall. It's a building that commemorates Federal Hall, an earlier building on the site. Now, that earlier Federal Hall was a Georgian building, like St. Paul's Chapel. And it was a very nice building. It was the first Capitol building of the United States when the Capitol, the national Capitol, was located in New York City during the first couple of years of George Washington's administration. And so many historic things happened in that building that had it not been torn down, it would today be as important a building as Independence Hall in Philadelphia. But tear it down we did because, you know what, this is New York and that's what we used to do. It was replaced by some conventional row houses. Those in their turn were torn down. And between 1833 and 1842, a new custom house was built. A new building built by the federal government. It had to be a very impressive building. The New York Custom House was arguably the most important federal building in the country after the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So it had to be a very solid building, a very impressive building. And remember the dates. 1833 to 42. Our architecture had entered 
into something called the Greek Revival during this period. And there were all sorts of reasons for the Greek Revival. Foremost among them, that we had learned a lot about Greek architecture and the artifacts of Greek civilization that we'd never known before. And we'd only learned this stuff beginning with archaeological expeditions in Greece in the mid-18th century. So a lot about Greece was new to us in the early 19th century. Consequently, it was very exciting to us. It sort of opened up a whole bunch of possibilities for architects and designers. There was more to it than that. America had always felt the special affinity with the ancient Greeks, with Athenian democracy, and so in Greece fought against the Turks for their independence. Americans identified with the Greek course, not just Americans. Lord Byron was all caught up in this, and so too were so many others, but Americans were really caught up in the Greek War of Independence, raising funds, building ships for the Greeks. You know, there were organizations in New York with names like the Greek Ladies of Brooklyn, who raised money for the Greek cause. Anyway, our architecture was for a period of about 15 years, modeled on the architecture of ancient Greece. Never too exactingly. If you go inside a Federal Hall National Memorial, you find a rotunda under a great Roman dome. But that's not what I want you to look at. I want you to stand outside, stand back a little bit, and look at the very imposing portico of Federal Hall National Memorial, the former custom house of 1833 to 42, and what you see is a sequence of eight very substantial Doric columns made out of marble, made out of Westchester County marble that was barged down the river to lower Manhattan at a time when railroads did not exist to bring marble from far-flung places. Building will put you in mind immediately of the Parthenon in Athens. It is what we would call a Parthenon-esque building. It has the same great, powerful presence that the Parthenon has. But it is also a very unusual adaptation of the Parthenon in that it is not meant to look at all like what the Parthenon looked like when the Parthenon was a new building. If you want to see what the Parthenon looked like when it was a new building, or what we imagine it to have looked like, you can go online and you'll come up with all sorts of images and you'll see that this was a vibrantly colored building filled with all sorts of sculpture. And yet when we built our Greek style buildings in the 1830s and 1840s, we left off most of the sculpture, we left out all of the color, and the buildings were consequently very, very austere. And this tells us that although the buildings are made up out of classical elements, classical architecture is a language because you can create a building out of classical elements that is sort of jolly and loquacious. You can build a building out of classical elements that is silent and brooding. You can, in other words, using the building blocks of classicism, create buildings in all moods to express all things. That's why we call classicism a language of architecture. 
The English language can be used to express something happy, can be used to express something sad. So too can the elements of classical architecture. And Federal Hall National Memorial is a brooding building. It brings us back to a time, that antebellum era in America, where the nation knew that it was hurtling towards this great decision that was tearing the nation apart, the debate over slavery. You don't want to read too much of this kind of thing into buildings, and yet there is something about the architecture of that era that makes us realize that Americans were anxious, that it was an anxious time in our country's history. Turn round now and look back at the New York Stock Exchange. This is a much later building, 60 years later. It uses many of the same basic elements of classical architecture, particularly that thing that we call the orders. Now, the Greeks created three orders of architecture that are the foundation of all subsequent classical architecture. They gave us the Doric order, the Ionic order, and the Corinthian order. Now, most people, I think, can distinguish a Doric column with that very plain top from an Ionic column with the scrolled volutes from a Corinthian column with that riot of floral decoration at the top of the column. But the order isn't just the style of column top or column capital. When we say order, it refers to vertical element, which is the column, and the horizontal element, which is either literally or figuratively held up by the column. And that horizontal element we call an entablature, a word which means table. So think of an order of architecture as being a table with legs. And a Doric entablature is different from an Ionic entablature, is different from a Corinthian entablature. And then the Romans come along and they add additional orders. They add something called the Tuscan order, something called the composite order. But above all, what the Romans did was they took a Greek order, one particular Greek order, known as the Corinthian, the most elaborate of all orders, an order that was, in fact, uh, very, very ornamental. Uh, the column capital of the Corinthian order is based on a plant found throughout the Mediterranean known as the acanthus. And the acanthus leaf forms that, that floral capital of the Corinthian. The acanthus leaf, in fact, is the single most identifying element to be found in all of Western art, and certainly architecture. And the Romans loved the Corinthian column because it was so elaborate, because it was so fancy, and because it could so easily be turned towards the glorification of Rome, toward an expression of Roman imperial grandeur. So while the Greeks hardly ever used the Corinthian. They were all about Doric and Ionic. The Romans took the Corinthian, ran with it, and we, in our turn, in New York, have found the Corinthian to be much to our liking. It is the Corinthian order that you find on the New York Stock Exchange. If Federal Hall National Memorial seems to be a kind of brooding presence, a building that, you know, uh, would rather not talk to you 
then the New York Stock Exchange is different. This is a building that kind of wants to, you know, hitch over the head with its fanciness. Those columns on the New York Stock Exchange are really beautifully crafted Corinthian columns, but they leave no mistake that this building has a very high opinion of the functions served within. But I want you to look up at the triangular top of the building. That is something that in ordinary usage you would call a gable. Your house may have a gable. That's the gable of the New York Stock Exchange. But a gable end of a roof in architecture, when it is outlined in cornices, those projecting eaves we find often at the tops of buildings, when it is so outlined, it becomes a frame. It's like a picture frame. And we call it by an architectural term, pediment. It is known as a pediment. Now, there is a triangular pediment on the New York Stock Exchange, and there is a triangular pediment on Federal Hall National Memorial, and you can just stand in one spot. They forbid traffic from that part of New York, so you don't have to worry about traffic. You just stand there, and you can turn your head from one side to the other to look at these two buildings and compare these two buildings. Federal Hall National Memorial, the pediment is absolutely blank. It's like walking to a museum and seeing a picture frame with no picture. Whereas when you look at the New York Stock Exchange, that pediment is filled with sculpture, just like those pictures you just looked up on the internet showing the Parthenon the way it originally looked. Why did we not put any imagery in the pediments of our buildings in the 1830s and 40s, but we did fill up the pediments of the 1890s and early 20th century with imagery? There is no simple answer to that question. But one thing that it's well to consider is that the kinds of craftsmen who were needed to do the sort of intricate carving of figures to fill pediments were rather dear in New York in the 1830s and 1840s. There simply weren't a lot of people around who could do that sort of thing. It's one of the things that mass immigration gave to New York, a ready supply of skilled stone carvers, beginning with German immigrants in the late 1840s and 1850s, and continuing on to the Italians who came beginning in the late 19th century. Now, if you want to see classicism at its very most advanced and refined, classical architecture that is as exacting and as sumptuous as anything to be found in Europe, I would advise you to go uptown, to midtown Manhattan, specifically to 42nd Street, where there is the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue between 40th and 42nd Street. Now, when I first moved to New York City, it's a very long time ago, no building drew me, no building called to me like the New York Public Library. I then knew enough about architecture to knew that, know that this was a great building, and I admired its architecture very much. I also admired what this building housed, that this was this great repository of knowledge that was available to everybody. It was the most marvelously democratic 
place in New York. And I felt that this great repository of knowledge was so suitably housed in a building that seemed to just exalt this very notion of a repository of knowledge. To me, this building was New York. It just spoke to everything good that New York was about, and it still does. It's a building like no other in New York and like no other in the nation. We call the building a classical building, but you'll also often hear the building referred to by a French term. You'll hear it called a Beaux-Arts building. What does this mean? Well, if you have a modicum of French, then you know that Beaux-Arts means fine arts. So it's a fine arts building. More specifically, to call a building Beaux-Arts is to refer to a school in Paris, an actual school in Paris that in one form or another dates back to the time of Louis XIV, but that by the 19th century was called by the name École des Beaux-Arts, or School of Fine Arts. This was a school of art and architecture that existed primarily for the training of French artists and architects, but it also was open to foreign students. Students from around the world could go to this school. Americans were particularly drawn to this school for a variety of reasons, not least among them being that there, when Americans started going to the École des Beaux-Arts, there were actually no architecture schools in the United States. So there's a good reason. But beyond that, Americans have always felt, just as they felt an affinity for the ancient Athenians, I think Americans have also felt a certain affinity or fondness, perhaps is the correct word, for the French. Going back to the Revolution, the Marquis de Lafayette, and so on and so forth. We got a lot of our architecture from the ancient Greeks and Romans via Paris. So Americans went to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, and then when they returned to American cities, not just New York, but Washington and Philadelphia and Chicago and San Francisco, they brought with them the values of Beaux-Arts architecture. And what were those values? In a nutshell, in the 19th century, a century unprecedented for its multiplication of new building types based on the new technologies that were transforming the world in the 19th century. Building types like art museums and public libraries and railroad stations and tall office buildings, building types that had never existed before and that required new thinking from architects. The Ecole des Beaux-Arts set out to train a new generation or two of architects to design these new buildings in the time-honored ways of classical architecture. First of all, could classical architecture be adapted to the design of these modern buildings? Why, yes, it could. And if you don't think so, then you must not like Grand Central Terminal. So, yes, it could be adapted to these buildings. How could it be adapted? Well, that was going to take some thought, and that's what the École des Beaux-Arts was all about. And that was the training ground of American architects. So, a building like the New York Public Library or like Grand Central Terminal, these were kinds of buildings, buildings that served functions and that were of a scale 
that simply didn't exist before the 19th century. And they were designed, as you can see by looking at these buildings, in a classical style, very elaborate classical style, a classical style that uh, operated at a monumental scale. New York Public Library is indeed a monumental building. But when you say monumental, that can sound a little forbidden. It can sound like uh, maybe the building isn't meant to be approached. As a matter of fact, many of the temples of the ancient Greeks, like the Parthenon, were not really buildings for every man. They were buildings for a restricted clerisy and buildings that the ordinary Athenian never entered. So uh, when we call the New York Public Library monumental, do we mean that this building is cold and unwelcoming? No, it's actually a very welcoming kind of monumental. It's a building that is meant to serve very large numbers of people. It's meant to make accessible to very large numbers of people a very large number of books and other materials to instruct and enrich the lives of these great many people who use it. But it's also a building that occupies a very important place in the cityscape of New York. It's located at one of the really important intersections of New York City, Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. It is a building in a part of town that is just thronged with people, with New Yorkers going to work, with some of the 60 or 70 million tourists uh, in New York. And it's a building that serves these people as well. It's a building that has a monumental stairway, but rather than that stairway being a forbidding thing, it's something that people love to sit on, to use, to, to relax, to get a load off their feet, where office workers eat lunch, where people sit and have conversations. It's like a town square. No other building in New York seems to function quite like this. People love to sit on the terrace that surrounds this building and that raises the building up above the sidewalk to give us a sense that this is indeed a very important building and a building that you're going to want to look at. But when you look at the building, you see that it is a building composed of details and a building in which not one square inch, literally, of the building was not carefully thought out by its designers and beautifully designed and beautifully crafted. So what to look at in the New York Public Library? Even if classical architecture may not be your thing, maybe if it's not to your taste, at least admire the craftsmanship that goes into it. Outside, on the terrace of the New York Public Library, look at those flagpole bases. Yes, flagpole bases. They're made out of bronze, and they were fabricated by the Tiffany Studios, and they are exquisite. The detail, the modeling of the human and animal figures to be found in those flagpole bases is so exquisite that these could grab your attention and not let go of your attention for a good hour and a not 
exaggerating. They're among the most exquisite things in New York City, and it's impossible to think that there are more exquisite flagpole bases to be found perhaps anywhere in the world. Look at the fountains that are on either side of the main portico of the building. Fountains representing truth and beauty with their beautifully sculpted figures by the great New York sculptor Frederick W. McManus. And then look at that entrance portico itself with its three arched openings separated by paired columns of beautiful design executed in Vermont marble. This building is an essay in stonework and particularly in the use of marble. Because as soon as you enter through that front door, you are in one of the unique rooms of the world. The Astor Hall, it's called. A building the floors, walls, and ceilings of which are entirely of marble. You may not know it, but that is an extraordinarily rare thing. And throughout the room, the marble is beautifully carved. Particular note, look in the four corners of the room. Will you, you will see these extraordinary lighting fixtures. Sometimes people call them torchères, but I think the correct word is, as they would have been called by the Romans, candelabra. These are themselves executed in marble, beautiful Carrara marble from Italy. Again, like the flagpole bases outside, you can spend an hour studying the beautiful classical details of these candelabra. Move beyond the Astor Hall in this building, and you find that the materials get softer. Wood begins to make an appearance in the next great room to the west, which is the Goddessman Exhibition Hall. Now, we're not going to do a tour of this entire building, but the point is that when you're in a room like the Goddessman Exhibition Hall, you are in a room that has very rich environment that you may not understand until you really begin to look at the surfaces of this room and see how carefully they have been designed. The richness of the wood carving, the beauty of the marble columns, that are to be found throughout this room, and so on and so forth. A great room is always a very carefully designed and carefully detailed room. And in a building like the New York Public Library, these details aren't just to be found in broad strokes. Everywhere you are in this building, examine the most minute details. Look at the door handles, look at the door hinges, and you will see that in these door handles and door hinges, and goodness knows, you can't, you know, work at any smaller scale than that in a building, you will see the same decorative motifs that you see at a larger scale in, let us say, the wood paneling of the Goddessman Exhibition Hall, and that you see at an even larger scale in the design of the entrance to the building on Fifth Avenue, or in the design of the terrace that wraps around the building. This is why James Gleick, the science writer who wrote a book about the mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot and his 
fractal theory of geometry, a book called Chaos, uh, said that fractal geometry was to Euclidean geometry what a great Beaux-Arts building like the Paris Opera House is to the Seagram building. That is to say, fractal geometry, the more complex geometry that seeks to explain some of the very complicated phenomena of the natural world, is uh, like an architecture in which uh, the details work on a variety of scales, whether it be a very small scale or a very large scale. And this is architecture that is emulating nature, that is emulating the way that nature works at different scales. This is what classical architecture, this highly evolved architecture, is all about. It is why it makes great places. It's why it makes buildings and streets that we feel comfortable in. It's why people write blog posts about the lighting fixture in the 168th Street subway station. It is the lingua franca of our architecture, something with which we are extremely comfortable, though we may never have thought to think about why we are comfortable with it. Organizations like the Institute of Classical Architecture seek to keep this alive, seek to keep classical architecture a living language of architecture that architects still learn and still apply. It's not to suggest that there are not great modern buildings. The Seagram Building is a great modern building, and there are many others in New York, and God knows nobody could imagine New York today without its great modern buildings. At the same time, to keep classicism alive strikes me as a noble goal and one to which some of us have dedicated ourselves. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 